Welcome to the Breakthrough Advisor Podcast. In this podcast, we inspire advisors with ideas and pathways to break through barriers and build a thriving retirement income business. We will interview innovative technology developers, business leaders, and successful advisors, then help you organize and execute these ideas to move your business forward. Hello and welcome to the Breakthrough Advisor podcast, a podcast truly like no other because my co-host, Jack Martin, who you all know, brings on truly remarkable guests. And our guest today is Lawrence Black. He's the founder of the Indexed Standard, and we're going to find out exactly what the heck that means here in just a few minutes. Uh, but the whole idea here is for us to bring you different sorts of intelligence to make you make the most informed decisions and provide the absolute best advice for your clients. Jack, I'm going to turn this right over to you because I'm excited about the questions you're going to ask. Lawrence, thank you uh, for joining us this afternoon. Tell the audience a little bit about who you are, where you come from, how you got here, and a little bit about what index standard is. I know we're going to dive into it pretty deeply today, but let us know where we should start in our, in our thought process about this. Fantastic. Well, let me tell you about how I started the index standard and the background. So I've spent about 25 years in, in investment banking, of which 15 were designing and developing indices. And I most recently spent 10 years at Barclays where I led the index design group and we've launched many indices. And I've also been fortunate through those 15 years to really see the evolution of the index world. So 15 years ago, we were designing plain, simple benchmark or sector indices. Today, we see a tremendous range of indices that are pretty complex where you see factor indices and risk control indices. So that's really my background. And at the same time, I've also been fortunate to work with a number of high profile investors. So when I worked at ABN Amro in London, I was fortunate enough to work with Joel Greenblatt and Jim Rogers. And then at Barclays, I worked with uh, Robert Schiller, who I still advise on indices today. And I also worked with Norio Rubini and uh, a company called Novus. So about two years ago, I began to think about a new challenge. And I left Barclays and I advised Professor Schiller. And, at that point, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe I'm going to design some indices. After all, that's what I've done for 15 years. And then I took a look at the market and I said, you know what? There are 3 million indices today and the complexity is getting, you know, is increasing. And then I sort of began to think about at some of the events that I've spoken at. And I would hear, you know, advisors would come to me and say, how does the risk control feature work? Or can you explain that index? And what I began to realize was with this sea of complexity that perhaps the, what the world needed was someone to help sort of decode and demystify the indices as opposed to a, yet another index. So that's where I founded the index standard. And what we do is we help, um, we help advisors understand indices. So what we do is we have a methodology where we go under the hood and we rate indices and we also forecast on indices and help project returns. So what we're trying to do is really deliver investment insight. We're trying to do it in a clear and straightforward way. So um, the, the, just to level set with our audience, a lot of them are recommending fixed indexed annuities and registered index linked annuities, the variable registered Kind of, kind of similar product. And all of these are, are driven, the engine behind them is all tied to some index, right? So um, I, I spoke with someone this morning who's, who's 
uh, a big manufacturer in that space uh, and they just launched a new product. And I said, so what are your indices? And they said, we've got the S&P 500, we've got an iShares real estate and we've got an iShares EFA. So those seem, you know, pretty straightforward. So that not like the factor or the risk control, the things you were just talking about. So help our audience understand how they should think about going in a different direction beyond the traditional simple benchmarks. Sure. So, uh, you know, my first observation, you know, those are good indices and their benchmarks. Now, my one sort of observation with that is the one thing we know in finance that is true is diversification is the only free lunch. So when you're building a diverse portfolio for the long term, you want to include a range of assets, a range of factors, and, and a range of exposures from different geographic regions. So what we see is a lot of advisors are just putting their clients into the S&P 500. And in that, those three choices that you mentioned, you know, you've got US equities and some European equities. So that's not terribly diverse. That's problem number one. The other problem is everyone loves the S&P 500 and it is a wonderful index. However, you know, it's returned about 14% over the last 10 years. And if, as I look forward, is it going to return another 14%? Hmm. I don't think so. So it's almost like as you're driving a car, you want to look in the front mirror and see what you expect. You don't want to look in the rear view, in the rear view mirror. So, you know, the rear view mirror is telling you the S&P returned 14%. But one thing we do in our forecasts is we look at what we expect the S&P and we have a technique where, where we go to all the advisors and all the big asset managers and investment houses and we aggregate their returns. And right now we're seeing around about 6% for the S&P as an expected return. So that's come down. So that's why we advocate diversification. So, you know, if you're going to be putting your money into the S&P 500 and the REIT index, that's American equities. You're not getting much diversification. The other thing that people should be aware, you know, the S&P, the technology sector and the communication sector account for almost 40%. If you throw in Amazon and Tesla, which are in another sector, you know, you're looking at about 44%. So do you want 44% of your assets concentrated in big tech? They've done incredibly well, especially over the pandemic, but there's now talk about regulation. So, you know, you want to be diversified. Listen, and European equities are cheap right now, so that's a good source of diversification. But I would say, what about other regions? What about Asia? What about Japan? Japan is cheap. You know, Asia is growing very fast. Don't forget other emerging markets like the BRIC markets or Africa. So you want to think about that. And then you want to think about other exposures. So why not bring in commodities? If inflation comes in, that could help your portfolio. Or gold as a, as a bit of a stabilizer. You know, bond yields are still pretty low, but you know, there are some yields to be found. So I, we encourage advisors to look at these risk control indices because we believe that they can add this really important diversification element that if you just put your clients into the S&P 500, you're missing out. And you know, my, fi my final comment is, it's such a shame because you know, the end client, they've spent their whole career working to save money for their, in their pension fund. And then the, it gets put at the S&P 500. They deserve better. They should have diverse portfolios that can help them retire better. 
So you've used um, risk controlled a couple of times. So what what does that mean in this context? What are we talking about? How, do, how does that change the nature of the indices that, you know, I mentioned that th- th- this fellow just launched in his new product versus some of the other things that are out there today? Yeah, that, that's a great question because, you know, this is a relatively newer technique. So what the risk control mechanism is, it's a mechanism that's designed to deliver stable returns and lower drawdowns. And really what it does is, for example, in a simple example, it might take an equity index and cash, and it'll toggle between the, these two asset classes based on volatility. And it's a simple principle. If volatility is high, that means equity markets are in a dangerous state, so they reduce your exposure to equities and vice versa. If markets are calm and volatility is low, they'll put more into equities and less into cash. It's just a technique that toggles between these two assets and it provides stable returns and lower drawdowns, as I said, and that's crucial. It helps um, an end person avoid a sequence of losses. And you know, I'll give you an example, Jack. March, 2020, the pandemic markets had fallen tremendously. S&P was down 34%. We analyzed the risk control indices, and on average, they fell about 9%. So that really helps you sleep better, and that's what these indices can do. They can help you sleep better and provide diversification for your portfolio. So I guess for those in our audience who are looking at fixed indexed annuities you know, that have some inherent downside protection or RILAs that have some downside protection built into them, how, how does that change the way we should look at these risk-controlled indices? Because I, I hear you saying what we're trying to do is mitigate uh, drawdown, right? Uh, and, 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 but at the same time, if we're in a structure that you know limits that. Uh, are we buying a belt and suspenders, and does that mean we're paying too much for what we're getting? Yeah, no. That, listen, that's the pertinent question because that's what everyone is was wondering in the industry, right? So the way I would think about it is, what volatility means. It sort of helps identify a range of outcomes. So the higher the volatility, that means the higher the range of outcomes. And a risk control index has lower volatility, let's say at the 6% level. So that means it's got a lower range of outcomes. Now, if I had to choose between these two assets and I'm gonna invest in a fixed index annuity, in a couple of years, let's say I choose the S&P for one and a risk control for the other. Now that means in a couple of years, there's a higher probability that the S&P could be higher, but it also could be lower. And because the S&P's done tremendously well, 14% annualized returns, you start to buy now, you might actually get, it might be in one of those periods where it's a negative return. So you are flawed at zero in a fixed index annuity, but if it's negative, you're going to get zero. Whereas if you consider a risk control index, because it's risk controlled, it's got a lower, lower range or lower distribution of outcomes, and they often cut off the, the negative tails. And therefore, you know, if you were to redeem in a couple of years time, you have a good probability that it might be a positive number and you can get credited a positive number. So that's the key difference, that volatility is a range of outcomes and with the S&P, you've got a higher range of outcomes. Some of those can be negative, whereas these risk control indices are designed for the structure and they can provide more stable returns, Jack. So 
uh, what I've heard so far is, so we've got these benchmarks, the S&P 500, EFA, et cetera. And now we have these new hybrid indices. And so the hybrids offer us a couple of things. One is uh, diversification because we get into additional asset classes, right? And the second thing is it offers this toggling, you know, going back between cash and, uh, and stocks, let's say. Um, so but doesn't that now create opacity? I mean, how, as an advisor, how do I see, you know, what's driving that? What, 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 I mean, is it, is it, I, I think a lot of us on this call remember this black box index that came out a few years ago and, you know, it, it was, it, it, back tested extremely well and you asked how does it work and what's in it and you got this can't tell you it's in a black box kind of thing right um so i i think a lot of us want to avoid that so help us pull back the curtain what's what's happening here and and how do, how do we analyze it how do we get comfortable with it how do we get our clients comfortable with with this level of of complexity yeah uh, yeah let, let, let me make three observations here so number one is say the design has really improved over the last couple of years, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was a high degree of opacity and it wasn't very clear what's going on. Now what you find is that a lot of the, the, the um, index providers or the banks will disclose, you know, the rules or exactly how the index works. So that's number one. Number two is the amount of um, sort of checks and balances that the index houses and the banks are putting into the into these indices to make them rigorous is, is incredible. You know, for each index to get launched, it has to normally have about three three internal reviews with committees at, at a bank or an index house, and then at a bank, the risk team, the legal team, and the compliance team will also check to make sure that the rules are clear, that investors are not to, that are not disadvantaged. There are no hidden fees and that they can be traded without moving the markets. And in fact, one large bank told us that their chief risk officer has to sign off on every single index. And that's a board member. So that's very senior. Another bank told us that they get a big four auditor to actually check all their index calculation values. So, you know, they are making, you know, big strides to really ensure that these indices are robust. But listen, they are, the third and final point is, they are more complex. We, I understand that. And that's really why I founded the index standard to try and help decode and demystify them. So what we do is we have a rating system where we evaluate each index. And then we go under the hood and look at it and compare each index to its peer group. And then we'll give it a rating, whether it's a platinum, gold, silver, and so on. And the other thing that we strive to do is we want to use clear and straightforward language. You know, some of these um, derivative people of which I kind of used to be one, perhaps I'm a reformed derivative guy, you know, they, they would use words like negative convexity. And, and that's hard to understand. So what we want to do in all our evaluations, we use clear language that everyone can understand because we want people to know which are the good indices, which are the diverse indices and which ones are supposed to deliver what they say they will. And those we believe can really add value in a, in a portfolio and delivering stable returns. So... How does how does index standard differ from some of the tools that are out there that show us backtesting? Uh, I, I was looking at one this week, um, and, and I was screening for a certain you know duration on the on the annuity, you know, a certain rating on the insurance company, and then it gives me a, an ROR for the last ten years. 
So how, do, how does what your what index standards is doing differ from that view that we're used to? Yeah, great. So two things, when we build our ratings, we have sort of a couple components. One is we look at scorecards, we look at complexity, we look at diversification. We do use historical numbers, but we also bring in some forward-looking forecasts. Now, you know, that's important to us because we also have our forecasts. And here, what we try and do is, you know, we try and help think about the future. Now, it's incredibly difficult to forecast. And what we do is, you know, very briefly, we get about 30 um, investment managers. As a managers, we get all their 10-year forecasts. We aggregate these. And then for each index, we look at the exposures that it has. And then we kind of, we know what the market expects in terms of forecasts by exposure. We analyze each index for that exposure and then we bring it together in a Monte Carlo simulation. And that really just is running at 10,000 times what could happen in the future, 10,000 times. And from that, we're able to derive, you know, a fairly sensible um, approximation of what the future may be. And the way we, and the way we present that is we also, we say it's a, here is a moderate return, conservative and potentially high, high scenario. So we give a range. And what we're trying to do is help people look forward. Because as I said to my earlier point, the S&P is probably not going to return 14%. It's almost like if, if you're an NFL fan looking at Tom Brady, you know, he's won seven Super Bowls, is he going to win seven more? If you're a European soccer fan, look at Lionel Messi, he's won five Ballas d'Ors, is he going to win five more? Probably not. You want to look forward. You want to buy the new you know, the new superstar, maybe it's Patrick Mahomes or Kieran Mappe in, in, in soccer. So with our forecasts, with the caveat that it's a very difficult thing to do, we present it in um, a very consistent manner. And the other thing that we do, Jack, is we run our forecasts for 700 indices and 700 ETFs. So everything we do is consistent and algorithmic. And it's not like we're using different inputs for different things where insurance company A might say, oh, we expect 20% on this index. Insurance company B might say 17.75. Another company might say 9.87. And it's like, oh, oh my gosh, I can't understand all that. What we do is everything is consistent and algorithmic and enables us to allow at least a reasonable comparison because everything is done in the same way. So I think when we were talking last week, uh, we, we talked about how some indices are really built around uh, backtesting. Yes. They, they are designed in terms of the asset classes, in terms of the rules that, that, that go into which asset classes, what the timing is when they're toggling, all those moving parts. They've all been designed to look really good based mm -hmm. on what's happened the last 10 years, okay? So now you're saying what your team does is they take the wisdom of the crowd all right, and come up with a different way, uh, a, a, yeah, a different way to view what's going to happen in the future, that the future, that the past is just not going to repeat itself, right? So any surprises that advisors, uh, you know, might hear if they, if they compared a great backtesting product versus a great forecasting uh, indices? I mean, are there yeah. surprises? Exactly. That, that's a great, you know, such a great observation. So there are a couple surprises. And I think, you know, let me give you a couple examples. So, so the first thing at a very high level, you know, what we're finding right now is that the expectations for the, the Bloomberg Barclays Ag Index, obviously, you know, the Ag, very famous, 
you know, the expectations for 10 years, that's going to return about 0.9% currently. That's incredibly low. So I think people intuitively expect it to be low, but I don't know if they know it's exactly that low, point number one. Point number two is that I would say we're also seeing a sort of a bit of a reversion where the market is generally expecting the growth factor. And you can also think about that as the tech stocks, probably not going to do as well as the next 10 years as perhaps value stocks. And, you know, an example of some value stocks might be banks and they're, they're pretty cheap right now. So those are some, you know, some high level thoughts. But, you know, what we also begin to see is with our methodology, if, for example, an index has leaned on, let's say, the growth factor, or maybe it's had a big tech exposure and it's showing you a good back test. Now, when we run that, we're picking up that, 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 that it's got a big exposure to growth and tech. And because our forecasts are slightly lower, we're actually showing a lower forecast for an index that maybe has a big exposure to the growth factor. And maybe an index that hasn't done so well recently, that might have a value exposure, we're expecting that to do um, a little better. So that's how we engineer our, our forecasts. We, you know, we take these, um, these market uh, forecasts and you know, people do, there's a, a, a tech, something that happens is called sort of long-term mean reversion. And that just simply means something that's done very well comes back down and something that's been very low goes back up. So we're, that's what the market is expecting, this sort of long-term coming back to the averages. So if I, if I hear you right, what you're saying is that going forward, if we were in an index that's heavily weighted in growth, technology, et cetera, that, that's likely to underperform. And um, uh, indices that are, that are maybe weighted a little bit more in value for sure, maybe international, uh, you know, probably are likely to overperform. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly fair to say. And that's a great point about that you bring in about international emerging markets. Those are two, another two examples where we see actually expectations for emerging markets and international are higher than the US. So I think it really makes sense to be well diversified at this stage, especially as you've got these high valuations in the US. So be diversified. That's what the, the smart advisors at, at these um, investment manager houses and asset managers are expecting. They do expect international and emerging markets to do better. So I think some of the listeners to this, you know, are, are, are probably a little bit more comfortable understanding the moving parts as you, you explained them. And, and transparency has been one objection of advisors about annuities generally and indices specifically. The other uh, objection has been around fees and, and expenses. And so, you know, if, if we're going to pay, you know, Barclays or, or Dr. Schiller or Jeremy Siegel, you know, to express themselves in an index, I would expect that that's going to be an expensive proposition. And so help me understand or get my head around, uh, you know, the cost factors here, what the fees oh. and expenses look like relative to say, if I just wanted to DIY it, you know, oh. if I just wanted to, you know, buy some, some options on my own. Good question. So a couple observations, you know, I would say we monitor the fees and what we see is that the fees have really sort of come down and non, most indices that are being launched by a bank, for example, might have about 50 basis points of fees typically. Now, you know, this may seem a lot, but you know, that's sort of a little bit lower than your average mutual fund. You could now buy the S&P at 
you know, three, four, five basis points. But other than that, a lot of the a lot of the indices that you can buy an ETF are anywhere from 15 to 50 basis points. So it's actually within a range, right? So point number one. The other important fact I think people tend to forget is the banks actually do carry significant risks on these indices. So give you an example. If an insurance company takes the S&P 500 5% risk control index, what they're actually doing is they're putting that, that, that option, they're bidding it out to up to anywhere up to 15 banks. So all the banks are submitting their bids and what you're finding is the prices are very, very tight. And now the, the, the winning bank wins and they've sold it at a very low price. And these indices are not without risks. You know, banks can actually lose significant amount of money under hedging. And um, I know some banks have lost in, in the order of millions, for example, when the 2016 election, what happened, if you recall, the S&P futures went down 4% and then they went back up 5% intraday. That actually triggered a number of banks' risk controls and they all had to delever and sell billions of dollars worth of the S&P at down 4%. And then overnight, it went back up to 5%. And then they had to go back and buy it. So you can imagine you're selling billions of dollars, and now you've got to buy it back 5% more expensive. They lost. So you, in some cases, some of these banks, it's a little bit like you, you know, you're picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. So people are getting stable returns. They delivered in option format. But the hedges are actually carrying the risk and, and they can get a little risky. So the fact that they, they, they need to earn a fee and 50 basis points is not tremendously high by mutual fund standard. And it's kind of just in the, in the range of, a, of an ETF. So I think that's a relatively fair number in exchange for the risks that they have to bear as well. So as, as we're kind of winding down, so what are two or three best practices for advisors when it comes to this question of, you know, choosing indices, understanding indices, presenting indices? What are two or three things they should be doing? You know, I, I, my number one thing is, you know, look for something that doesn't have too many parameters. So if you see an index... Oh, excuse me, what, what, what's a parameter? So a parameter might be I'm selecting, uh, you know, the stocks have got the lowest uh, price to earnings ratio, and then I'm selecting the stocks with the most growth momentum. Then I'm selecting stocks that have got low volatility. Then I'm selecting stocks that have got high dividends, and then I'm weighting them in a funny a scheme. And then I've got a risk control, and then I've got another risk control and a mean variance optimization. If you see too many features or parameters like that, what you can sort of maybe think to yourself is, listen, that's been over-engineered. I think things you should look out for are indices that have relatively simple mechanisms that are not over-engineered. That's what we like to see. Um, things that are, that are quite straightforward. Um, and also, you know, look for a, a back test that might show some underperformance. Because if you see something that's gone up in a straight line, that's incredibly difficult. So something that presents you with a realistic backcasting scenario, you know, at least you understand that they're being a little bit honest. So those are the key things. And, you know, at the index standard, we're here to help, right? That's what we do. This is our bread and butter. I've spent 15 years designing these. My, my partner called Jay Watson has also spent a number of over a decade designing indices. So between us, that's what we're here to do is really try and dig into these indices and help advisors understand which are the good ones. Awesome. Absolutely fascinating. 
All right. All right, beautiful. Yep. So if you have not subscribed to the podcast, make sure you click that subscribe now button below. That way, every time we come out with a new podcast, show up directly on your listening device. But more importantly, make sure that you check out the index standard. Uh, Lawrence, what is the best way for them to reach out to you and find out more about who you are and what you do? Go to theindexstandard.com and you can contact us there and we'd love to hear from you. Magnificent. Also, make sure that you uh, follow Lawrence on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, it's Lawrence with a U, uh, so Lawrence Black. So, so please make sure you follow him on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the Breakthrough Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InsureMark. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. 